Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Hey, y'all. <laughs> this is the uh, last uh, episode before we go on a, a two-week uh, vacation uh, break or a brief hiatus. Whatever, whatever passes for vacations right now. But um, I, what's, what's happening? Going to see grandparents and not killing them is what counts as vacations right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, before we begin, I want to say thank you to those who responded to the um, uh, appeal for support last time. We've seen a lot, a lot of uh, you know people step up, and uh, thank you. It's really, really um, just inc- encouraging. So, uh, thank you. Praise God! The generosity of people during this time has been pretty inspiring. I have to say. So. Um, yeah, thank you. Hashtag low anthropology. Abs- I mean, but absolutely. <laughs> That's right. I, I Wait, agree I with you. I rethink my entire theology I was theology like, I don't now. feel generous, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, before we dive in, what's happening? Ooh, you know, we were supposed to be on sabbatical right now. We're supposed to be gone, you know. You are. And, you and are. It's a different kind of sabbatical. It's a different kind it's of sabbatical. It's really stressful, and then nothing to do sabbatical. Um, That's the best kind. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it almost kills you, and then there's nothing, and then there's just a void of things to do. But and you you're don't... growing in such spiritual wisdom. Yeah, and so now, instead of that, we're going to uh, Mississippi to see my parents, which will mm. be great. And we've gotten a, a cabin in rural Arkansas, so which is Ooh. not the same thing as California, which is where we were going. <laughs> I hear Arkansas is beautiful, though, actually. Like it, in the mountains you know, of my Arkansas daddy's from Arkansas. It is really pretty. There's some hiking. You know, it, it'll be it'll be what it is. We're 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 honestly we're just thankful we can get away at all. I feel like we're we're doing well, you know, honestly, like mm. I feel like we're doing OK. RJ, Good. you're still in Houston. I can tell by the room. I am. I am. It's uh, but 17 days from today, the wow. Packers show up and pack up our house and Move us to Florida, but uh, we're we're really excited, and uh, we found out Jackson will start college in the fall. Did I mention that last week already? Did I no. say that? No, weren't sure. Yeah, he's they're gonna as of now they're gonna start in August. Praise God. So uh, so things are okay. Big news in our little neck oh, of the yeah. woods. <laughs> you got a girl. We got a girl, a girl, Aww. little puppy. My middle son's been begging for a puppy for years, and I just I'm, did not grow up with uh, house pets. But watching how much he loves puppies, and we have a lot of people who walk dogs in our neighborhood, it was just kind of felt like uh, depriving him at, at some point, even though it's another thing to add into our insanity. My my oldest, my three-year-old is just potty trained. And so it was I like... I was like, you kind of have a puppy in him. Yeah. I kind of have a puppy. I felt that I've had a puppy you in him. You could have someone peeing on the floor. And or, I was like, know, well, it's, it's, I guess I'm going yes. to have a void of you know <laughs> yes. feces in my life. So why not just fill it again? Yes. That's right. Uh, you thought you were done cleaning up poop, but I guess yeah. not. I so, like desperately begged God. for new carpet in the rectory and because um, our carpet's old enough to vote. And Josh was like, all right, let's do it. Let's go look at carpet. It's like we come home and um, both kids and the dog peed on the carpet. He's like, look, we're going to wait. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) But like until everyone's not peeing on the carpet, we're not getting new carpet. (laughs) Well, so far it it is really, it is like having an infant around. Yeah. Because this is a 10 week old puppy. She's little. Yeah. Were you guys picky eaters as kids? Speaking of infants. No. No, no. In fact, I remember the moment when I decided to, we were just talking about this the other day at home because we have a picky eater. Um, When I decided I was just going to give up on fighting my parents, I was like four or five years old and it was a vegetable soup. And I clearly remember taking a bite of it and being like, actually, this ain't bad, you know, (laughs) so like, but yeah, no, I wasn't, but we were definitely right. One of our kids is a picky eater for sure. RJ, do you guys have any picky eaters in your house? 
Not really. I mean, a little bit, but they're pretty good about uh, about eating just about anything we put in front of them, and they'll and they'll try it again, you know, if they don't like it. Um, but uh, anyway, I mean, I, I know we're. I, I have some stories. Should I tell them now, or should I wait for the? Let's uh, wait till this this uh, article has been read. This came on. This was in CNN, and uh, as of a, out of a study that just came out, picky eating linked to demanding parents who limit food. Study says, demanding that a child eat or restricting food are associated with some of the pickiest eaters, according to this new study published Tuesday in the journal Pediatrics. Lower levels of picky eating in children were associated with parents imposing few restrictions on food and a lack of pressure to eat. Eating is one of the few domains kids can exert some control over, said senior author Dr. Megan Pesh, a developmental and behavioral pediatrician. As a result, she says, don't force kids to clean their plate. Don't make them sit at the dinner table until they eat a certain amount of food. And avoid bribing with food. I was going to say, like, I, I failed that test. Um, Josh, did you hear that? It's not bribing her. Guilty as charged. That can be hard for parents, Pesh acknowledged, sharing that she too struggles not to do the same with her three small children. It's a natural inclination to say... If you eat your green beans, you can have dessert. Yep. But that can backfire and create an even larger negative association with that food. The study found no difference among children due to socioeconomic demographics, but did find higher rates of picky eating among children who had problems regulating their emotions. Towards the end, though, she ends on a little note of grace. She says, some kids are wired to be more cautious, to be a little bit more anxious. I don't think parents should really feel a personal blame for this. Some kids are just going to be picky. After basically telling us that mm, the, <laughs> they're going to be a lot fault. more picky if you force food down their throats. Um, we happen to have one very uh, broad palate of my children and then one increasingly narrow one. And uh, then a, a three-year-old who I don't even consider a sentient human being at this point. <laughs> he, he basically subsists on pancakes and Uncrustables. And like fruit bars. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> his is just like, just give him whatever he wants to give, make him be quiet. And now we Marshall got a puppy. eats so much cookies and cream ice cream. <laughs> so much ice cream. Like you better feed him in the morning. Or And we have one of the, we have the, the freezer that's on the bottom. Oh, you know, so we so can he, just go over, can get it out, it up, so. get it out and just take it down. Oh, take it, it was downtown. a dark day yeah. when my three-year-old figured out that if he used all of his strength, he could pry open that freezer. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Um, but here we have the basic lesson of kind of, you know, in our terms, it's the, the law increases the trespass, the, the yeah. injunction to do something, to eat a certain thing, to, to not be picky, uh, actually produces pickiness. Um, but let's hear your stories of this, uh, because it's a very present reality for some parents. And I know actually some parents who are deeply ashamed that they go to places and their kids refuse to eat what their friends have made. And it's not anything medical. It's just that they only will eat chicken nuggets, you know. Uh, so it's a, it's a very it's not a minor thing for uh oh i do want to say like you shouldn't be embarrassed about that like if people are having kids over for food like or for for dinner they should definitely make frozen garlic bread like i don't understand do you know what i, mean? why, I don't why, know why would any meal lack Texas frozen toast? garlic bread <laughs> like you, if you always have a there's all you they will always eat that Fallback. and fruit so like no matter what else i make there's frozen garlic bread and there's watermelon and i know that someone's eating something i thought this was interesting timing i'm 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 eager to hear rj's stories because we're eating we already ate a lot together like we already were you know we're one of those families that like tries to do dinner together so we probably you know in a in a bad week we have dinner together four nights but most you know most nights we have dinner together but now in the pandemic it's every night you know like nobody's got plans you know there's no meeting you're going to like everybody's eating dinner together every night so um we've faced our picky eater i think with more regularity and i think we're all just kind of collectively wearing each other down <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I'm giving up a little. She's giving up a little. Like, it's just, like, where we are. Meet me in the middle. Meet We're also middle. dealing with some emotional eating, like, that, like, I don't think we would we did before. Um, she just gets lonely. And today, 
in fact, like an hour before we recorded this, she was like, I just, I, you know, I want you to sit by me. I want, I want this. I want that. Please come over here. And I'm like trying to get work done. And she just like, <laughs> she just like slumps her shoulders and goes, I'm going to go get an ice cream. <laughs> I was like, okay. I've been there too. I've been there too. <laughs> I don't. This article, I, I yeah. I mean, I broadly agree with the notion that, uh, as we say, the uh, um, the law increases the trespass. As as someone uh, runs once wrote, you know, Paul and Romans. Um, but it made me think of my dentist that I grew up with, uh, Doctor Kirchhoff in Connecticut, who I love, because I have bad teeth, mm. um, and I've had lots of ah, uh, cavities and stuff. Chink in the armor. Well, and I finally, I went, I finally asked him one time, I was like, Dr. Kirchhoff, like, why I brush, I floss, like, why do I have so many cavities? And I said, I don't drink a lot of soda, you know, I'm not big on candy, like, whatever. He's like, RJ, it's genetics. It's just all genetics, you know? And I was like, oh, thank God. And then the more I've gotten to know people, it's true. Like, I know people who never floss, and they've never had a cavity, and the converse is also true. And so the reason that came up, I thought about Spencer, my, my... 15-year-old, who is the least picky and most adventurous of all of our eaters. Like, he'll order at a, you know, fancy dinner we go to, he'll order the raw quail egg. And he won't like it, but he'll order it. Um, and he'll give it, he'll give it a shot. But the one thing he hates is cilantro. He just cannot oh, take cilantro. tough for a Tex-Mex It is. Situation. And I was always like, what's the, and I was like, what's the deal, it's dude? another like, genetic like thing. everything else, like, really? And then, of course, I listened to a podcast where there is a particular gene that if you have it or don't have it, whatever, cilantro tastes like dish soap. Yep. Yeah. Like, that's just the way it is. Um, I wonder how many of these things are genetic. And then also, this goes back to the whole bondage of the will thing, right? Like, if we begin to see these kinds of preferences not as the result of someone being difficult, um, but just who someone is, you know, like, oh, you've got bad teeth, Oh, you know, you lack the gene for cilantro, whatever it is. Then maybe um, we can treat ourselves and our kids a little bit more compassion and patience, you know? So the answer... Yeah, and I also think, I mean, like, I know adults who, like, and you guys have, I'm sure, been around adults like this, who are really picky eaters as adults. And, you know, sometimes that's just a matter of, like, the family you were born into and the kind of foods you were exposed to. Like, it, like I just, I do, I agree with you, RJ, in that I feel like we have very little control um, over how this plays itself out. This article did make me feel, like, super guilty, though, because I definitely do stuff with our kid where I'm like, if you eat this, you can have more ice cream. <laughs> Yeah, more of your sadness foods, if you and it this, totally you can have works. More of your lonely food, yeah. <laughs> you can have more of your sadness foods. <laughs> yeah. but but and it and it does work. Um, but it's you know, I mean, I don't know. <clears throat> I feel like this is such a, a a thing with with parents where we're all just kind of like, I don't know. I feel like we say this all the time at parenting, but doing the best we can in terms of what our kids are going to eat because there's mm. always. A comparison and and you know there's a whole culture around parenting and what we feed our kids now that there that didn't used to exist yeah um you know around like is it organic and have you thought this through and what you know all these kinds of questions um yeah. and then like all my kid wants to eat is like crackers and you know salami and when when you guys mentioned about genetics you know i can't help but think the uh you know the great passages in the new testament where the the man's born blind and they ask who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind and i guess the mm-hmm. the answer when it comes to picky food if it's really genetic or uh mm. then it's your parents your parents clearly are the ones who that that's where the sin's coming from it's all man. um i mean i only sort of joke i i remember being um watch uh, we were at a function one time and uh with some very well-behaved lovely children and uh we were asking them what their favorite food was and one of these kids who was six years old said their favorite food was salmon and rice and my my (laughs) wife like we almost both just threw up i mean it was we ran for the bathroom or something we were like what is we are the worst people in the whole world what is wrong with us are like uncrustables obviously like i like pizza and i like it a lot (laughs) and that's what i will eat until i throw up (laughs) and um we just felt like such colossal failures and it's amazing how something like that i can any number of i could talk about reading levels or i could talk about 
And some of those make a parent feel shame. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about picky eating things is sometimes kids will also feel shame around like, you know, reading levels or they'll be uh, they'll mm-hmm. be well aware of who's the best athlete in the class. Mm-hmm. But picky eating stuff doesn't seem to. Oh, lo- that's really there's true. no peer pressure around that. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, I'm just not going to eat mm-hmm. that stuff. Yeah. Our daughter gives no ducks because like our son will eat everything and we'll be like, look at your brother. Like he'll eat this, this and this. She's like, <laughs> what a loser. Mine. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that makes me think of though, is that people, you know, that we hear this as the sort of the law grace dynamic as it relates to feeding children food. And, you know, of course there are times in which if, if a child doesn't eat any, you know, uh, vegetables, they're going to, you know, have some health issues or if all they eat is uncrustables, it's not our house. Yeah. You won't be able to poop. So there is, there is like a first use of the law, like just basic, well, you got it. You got to eat this. And you know what an enema is? It's not fun. (laughs) And your, for anybody. Your, your mother or I worked hard to make this, and uh, you're going to eat it. You do know what an enema <laughs> oh my is. God. That never works. The last thing I'll say, gosh, I guess this brought up a lot for me, is that there was a wonderful article a few years ago um, in, uh, I think, it, Mark Oppenheimer wrote it, about mm-hmm. how when he was growing up in the 80s, it was a very uh, progressive move for parents like liberal parents were the ones who were cool with fast food you ordered dominoes because it was a way to say that the woman was not having to cook meals all the time she was not chained and it was totally fine and and there was a relaxation around um food and yeah. around that stuff, and then to be to grow up, and then to be basically be like you go to a, a, a if you're in a blue state situation, and you go to a certain type of birthday party, and everyone's monitoring what the kids are eating and whatnot. And yeah. Domino's, if you serve it to your children, you might as well just be handing them poison apples right. or something. <laughs> it's the the same. Th- these values they fluctuate so much. Or what what yes. was once liberals now progress yes. uh, uh, conservative, and then what was conservatives now liberal. And you're seeing that, of course, with all sorts of other COVID related things. Yeah, uh, I notice it's like uh, generally speaking, the rule keepers in my uh, when I was growing up were always the more conservative folks, the button down mm-hmm. folks. Mm-hmm. And now today, the I, I saw yesterday a guy wearing a big mask with an ACDC logo on it. Great. And I'm thinking like that sort of rule following, while I understand where it's coming from, it's the it's the absolute opposite of what ACDC as a band stands for. <laughs> they are rebellion. They are about nonconformity and they're about doing whatever the hell you want at all times. And so these things get they switch hats all the time. They and do. so it's hard to take any of it that seriously. I just like now I all I can think about is those birthday parties where they, they go around, you know, there's like this person with this terrible job that works at like a bouncy house place that deals with kids' birthday parties. God help them from this wretched estate. But their whole job is to like walk around with the pizza, yeah. you know, oh, and then walk around with the cake. And there's always like this weird dynamic with the moms where they just like put their hands up and they're like, I'm good. I'm fine. Thank you. No, I'm okay. I had a smoothie. Thank you. And I'm like, come on, Whitney. You know, you want some cake. <laughs> Whitney. <laughs> Poor Whitney. Oh, man. Well, what, a, we'll what a rough home life she must switch. have. We're going to shift gears from talking about picky eating to talking about mm-hmm. something much more serious. This is a week uh, we're recording this actually the day after riots have broken out in Minneapolis related to the death of George Floyd, the black man who was suffocated with a policeman on his knee. And this is the latest in, the, in uh, a number of just absolutely... For me, I'll say that because of the footage and the photographs, it has a un- almost uniquely stomach-turning effect. It's burned into my head in a way that, uh, you know, it's almost like a, it's going to become an iconic photograph. But if you're like me and you feel unqualified or just uncomfortable talking about racism as a person you know mm-hmm. who who is doesn't feel uniquely familiar with the effect of it shall we say uh, I, there I was looking at things and in 2018 actually the New York Times ran uh, what I thought what I found to be a quite a gripping article called how to talk to a racist this was written by Margaret Wrinkle and it at least it it, it gives us a way in this is what she she writes she says being called a racist because that's what we're once again talking about, uh, almost never causes a racist to wake up. 
Being called a racist almost never causes a racist to say, oh, wow, you're right. I get that it's hard not to scream racist at a racist. If you're a white person who wants to be an advocate, it's both infuriating and demoralizing to know that the people causing all this suffering are people who look just like you. But here's what's also true. Prejudice is endemic to humanity itself. Human beings are tribal creatures. We trust the familiar and are drawn to it. We distrust the unfamiliar and keep our distance. Further on down the article, she says, So, if you're a white liberal whose goal is to feel morally superior to such racists, go ahead and urge them to check their white privilege. Call them stupid rednecks. Get online and tweet your feats of moral daring do in the cause of a more just society. You haven't made a single thing better for anyone suffering the actual effects of racism, but when has that ever stopped us from airing a little righteous indignation? If, on the other hand, your whole uh, goal is to foster a more equitable culture, you need to stop yelling racist at anyone who doesn't see the world exactly as you do. Somehow, you need to find enough common ground for a real conversation about race, because very few people are stupid or irredeemably mean. They'll listen to what you have to say. If they trust, you'll listen to what they have to say back. So before you say a single word, think of all the times you made an assumption about a stranger that proved to be untrue. Think of the times you found yourself feeling uneasy in the company of strangers of another race. Think about how you were forced to interrogate that uneasiness. Think of the plank in your own eye. To begin a real conversation about racism, start there. Yeah, I I mean, Dave and I talked about this. We had some back and forth about this a little bit because, um, you know, I um, am I'm horrified by what has happened to George Floyd and what has happened to so many, mostly black men, but some black women in this country. I'm thinking of Sandra Bland, um, who, um, died in the, in police custody, um, who actually very, very close to Houston. Um, but what I think what I want to say is I, the response that I'm seeing, especially from white liberals, is, I don't know. It's either two responses, both of which drive me crazy. The, the first one is, yes, they're like, these people are racist and they're rednecks. And, I mean, that's that hits all sorts of buttons for me as somebody from Mississippi. Um, but then the other, the other thing that, that I'm seeing is, like, people like, we have to examine our own, you know, like, I'm going to do the work kind of thing. And I'm like cool but like I feel like mostly you get it and like maybe you know white people who permanently feel guilty are not really doing a lot for me except like getting to feel guilty but there's this whole population of people who are legitimately racist right who um who we're not engaging at all we're just sort of like canceling them we're kind of just like throwing them out and that's not going to do us any good in the long run. I mean, it reminds me so much of that um, documentary about the the flat earthers, people who believe that the you know the world is flat. Um, it's called Behind the Curve, and and how there were all these social psychologists who were like, look, if you keep telling these people they're stupid, you're going to just back them so far across the room you won't be able to reach them. Do the self work if you want to do it. I you know, and you feel called to do it. I don't mean to poo poo that, but like. It just feels it's it just feels inactive to me on some level Um, when when the scary conversations we don't want to have are maybe not so much with ourselves, but are with people who are legitimately racist. Um, And how do we navigate that? How do we navigate this when they're our family? I mean, I'm from a place where I have family who say racist things. And and one thing I would say is it was modeled for me very early in my household of origin to have these conversations with people who are racist in a compassionate way, but in a direct way. And that was a huge gift to me as a kid. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's useful, but I mean, I, I distinctly remember, and I have a lot of aunts, so I can say this without, you know, which one it was, but I distinctly remember just a few years ago, I was around one of my aunts and football was on and she made a racist comment. And I just turned her, we're going to call her aunt Jane. Cause I don't have an aunt Jane. I just turned to aunt Jane. I said, aunt Jane, we don't say things like that anymore. And it was like, and she looked at me like, we don't. And I was like, no, honey, we can't say things like that anymore. You don't talk like that anymore. Like that's not, that's not where we come from on this anymore. I think the nuance here that, that I think is important is, is when we talk to people who are very racist or who are racist, I think we actually should say we, right? And I think, sure, there's some validity there. I'm certainly racist. I'm a white woman in 2020. But also, 
it it keeps us from saying you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? To these people. Yeah. So you're wrong. You're one of these people. I'm going to set you straight. Eat your um, vegetables, God damn it. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't work. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I, that was a little ranty, but this definitely, I'm, I, I'm, I just don't know if all this like white lament is going to go anywhere. Yeah, this article reminded me of, you know, that famously bad quote from Hillary Clinton about the basket of deplorables, mm-hmm. you know, which just a hundred percent backfired and people mm-hmm. started wearing t-shirts called deplorables mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and the, the echo chamber and the temptation towards self-righteousness and, um, you know, I did, I bought this book, um, I haven't read it all the way through, but I think I've talked about it before called, um, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, written mm. by um, a Berkeley sociologist who, in his own words, is trying to scale the empathy wall, like trying to understand people mm-hmm. who are different and see the world differently and to recognize that people don't always do and say things just because they're stupid or racist. Like that may be part of it, but there are all sorts of – people have stories, you know, and that if you can – show some love for people that might actually be a chance of, of connecting and changing minds. And, mm. But with regard to all this stuff, Dave, I think the way you introduced it was perfect for me because I feel so unqualified um, to talk about it. Um, and the story which comes to mind is, you know, a few years back, um, I don't know, something happened to me that I felt was unfair I felt unjustly treated. I felt like my voice wasn't heard. I felt like I didn't matter. I felt um, sort of beaten down a little bit. And an older priest and kind of mentor who's just a wonderful guy was like, well, RJ, you know, I know that you're kind of a wealthy white male, and this may be the first time in your life that you're experiencing something like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But remember, there are whole segments of the population who feel that way all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and... and, um, and that was a good word to hear. It was like, oh yeah, this 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 anger and this rage that I have is because I'm not used to feeling like I don't matter, and that someone can just criticize me and and um, act with impunity. Mm. Um, so again, I, I don't feel qualified to to talk about it. It's just it's just awful. Yeah, it strikes me as a couple things. You know, I I think that the longer this sort of thing goes on, the, people want to say, oh, we're in this uniquely terrible time for this. But I really, I'm of the opinion at this point that we're no, we're just it's just being captured on on camera, like yeah. that's that we're and and that's you you can't kind of escape that um i do think that you know simeon's all given a, an incredible talk about hide, sin hiding in plain sight like what happened to the doctrine of original sin a few years ago and he said one of the ways we talk about sin today is talking about um cognitive bias and prejudice and the stuff that is that we inherit and that is also just you know when the writer says that you know we are all endemic prejudice is sort of endemic to how human beings organize themselves and you want to be around that, which is familiar. And you see it with, you know, you see it the way kids organize. You see it the way we sort. You know, we were talking about middle school a couple of weeks ago. This is very much so. It, it really is a truth that if you think you got no, if you're completely coming at this with a clean slate, you're just compl- you're lying to yourself. Yeah. For me, the most formative Im- racial uh, experience I that I had was when I was in high school. I took a summer job working at a steel mill in Birmingham, Alabama. I wish you guys could see RJ's face right now. And wow. It, you know, That's no one, amazing. No one believes I had it. no idea. I had to wear steel toed shoes and I worked at a, at a steel press for stood standing there for, you know, 12 hours at a time with a guy who's named was named Fatback. And the uh, this was Alabama in the '90s, and it was you know not known as this terribly integrated place. And yet I watched black and white, a level of camaraderie and familiarity among these men that I I was at a boarding school in the Northeast, which is the polar opposite socioeconomically of what I was dealing with. And this is and it challenged every assumption I had because these were supposed to be these super racist people who could never talk to each other and yet these guys were giving each other a hard time and in a in a funny and jocular way and and really talking about what really mattered. Um 
and they were having honest conversations actually about race in a way that I had never, uh, ours were much more circumscribed and like, this is what you're allowed to say. This is what you're not allowed to say. And it was very uh, open enlightening for me, especially though, in the way that I saw it play out in the, the, the Christianity of these folks and that it was maybe, uh, their faith had different emphases than ours. I mean, we're right down the street from a doers of the word church, which mm. couldn't have been more different than what I was sort of been raised to believe. But I saw a, a core level graciousness from the Christians in both in, you know, these were Baptists, black Baptists, white Baptists. And the cultural narrative was that these were the enemy or that they were these unenlightened hypocrites. And, uh, that just wasn't the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, or at least that wasn't the full truth. And there was a lot more going on. It was a really eye-opening thing for me. Um, and that, that kind of, there's, again, no answer here except for, I guess, a, 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 the, the, the awkward, painful process of even talking about these things. But I, I, I do know that very, very few people, there are, it, there's a small portion of folks, and we're, I'm, I'm telling, saying this from Charlottesville, which is right across the street from, you know, where an office is right across the street where these race riots happened. There's a very, very small portion of the population that would self-identify as racist. It's like the term yuppie. No one actually considers themselves to be one. And so how do you then talk to someone if you lead with an accusation just in any kind of life situation, just like in your marriage? If you lead with an accusation, if you lead with the law, a demand, it you're going to go nowhere. And you're only going to make the—everyone's going to be, end up being a pickier eater. Someone's going to become more self-righteous, and someone's going to become more—feeling uh, more and more marginalized. And I remember when we had those riots here, there was a delivery man, a young black man, who said, you know, the truth is, those white supremacist guys with the Nazi stuff— I kind of noticed you're clear of them. They never actually give us a hard time. It's when you're in the wealthy neighborhood and the lady in yoga pants calls the police when you're delivering food. You know, that's that's the real issue. And those are the and the person with the, you know, with the Bernie sticker on the back of their car or something like that. And that's enlightening. None of this is this is so hard to break down in a constructive way. And yet maybe bringing it into the light, the awful process is part of the healing. I know that Sarah, we, that Christianity Today published an article yeah. just on the heels of this saying that George Floyd left a gospel legacy in the third ward of Houston, where I know that you guys have done some work. Yeah, we. I, I read that. It was so striking last night to see. I mean, I kind of couldn't believe what I was reading that he um, just cause it was like, oh, my God, he served like right here. Like and I've they were talked about him being in these community events and we go to those community events. So this is this um, area in Houston where our church feeds kids every weekend and it's the area that he worked in and was really passionate about the gospel in. And um, just to think that our paths had crossed um, and that he loved those kids, the same kids that we love. Um, it's just, you know, it's just heartbreaking. I, I don't know. I I feel really lucky, you guys. Like I, when I think about how my parents, the neighborhood I was born in was, I think I've talked about this before, was majority African-American the daycare I went to, I was one of the only white kids, like really early that was imparted to me. And I know not everybody has that experience. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll, and I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's tough. Cause I'll, you know, my father, uh, who grew up on a farm in rural Holland, I don't think he saw a black person of mm-hmm. color, black person until he was, he was in his twenties. Mm-hmm. And I think that led to choices about where we lived, where we went to school. Yeah. I mean, it's right. It's, it's, it's it's such a fine line between trying to change somebody else's mind, but also right. I, mean, I loved the way she ended this article, right, with a biblical quote, take the log out of your own eye. Yeah. Uh, which it, it, it's amazing how many, it's amazing how many articles are quoting the Bible right now in yeah. so many different it's places. Weird. It's like it's unpointful or something, I don't know. Yeah, remember that Remember that incredible article, A Tale of Two Churches, that we read a few? Yeah, few yes. I was thinking about that too. That article sticks with me. I think it's, I'll link to it in the show notes. Let me just say... Um, I, I one thing I wanted to there the pastor who worked with Floyd in the third ward of Houston, Pastor Patrick P T Nguolo, he um he was bemoaning the fact that Floyd was a great guy, but the fact that we have to sort of build this narrative of righteousness around him in order for mm-hmm. him to be lamented is mm-hmm. um, he's tired of it. He said, the fact that you have to build a narrative for a man to be loved and given justice is repulsive to me, even if he was a capital criminal. He deserved to be treated as someone created in God's image. I'm done coddling Christians who can only love people they deem to be lovable. 
the Christian message, it does not have to give this man uh, a blameless righteousness first. Right. You have to right. say, um, and that's what he was saying. He's like, let's talk about the man I actually knew, not some saint in order to get right. your attention. Because then you have like this sinlessness that gets imputed to the man. And that's not the point. The point is that he uh, was deserving of dignity because he was created in God's image. So let's move from there to... Um, We've confessed our uh, complete ignorance and uh, lack of any expertise. <laughs> Let's go to uh, No One Knows What's Going to Happen by Mark Lilla in the New York Times. And this mirrors something we quoted from Alan Jacobs a few weeks ago uh, in all of these prognostication ar- articles about the future of education. So he, needed, he said, Let's, let's, I wish we could write a computer script that would just go in every five sentences and insert the phrase, nobody knows anything. So, but this is Mark Lilla uh, talking about our uh, prediction addiction. People facing immediate danger want to hear an authoritative voice they can draw assurance from. They want to be told what will occur, how they should prepare, and that all will be well. We are not well designed, it seems, to live in uncertainty. The history of humanity is the history of impatience. Woo! I mean, isn't that like the Bible? Um, no, not only do we want knowledge of the future, we want it when we want it. The book of Job condemns as prideful this desire for immediate attention. Speaking out of the whirlwind, God, out of the whirlwind, God makes it clear that he is not a vending machine. We must learn to wait upon the Lord, the Bible tells us. Good luck with that, Job no doubt grumbled. Prophets today are less flamboyant than the oracle of Delphi. Augers have given up on sheep livers and replaced them with big data and statistical modeling. The wonder is that we still cry out for their help, given that the future is full of surprises. The public square is thick today with augers and prophets claiming to foresee the post-COVID world to come. I myself have been pursued by foreign journalists asking what the pandemic will mean for the American presidential election, populism, the prospects of socialism, race relations, economic growth, higher education, New York City politics, and more. And they seem awfully put out when I say I have no idea. You know your lines, just say them. At some level, people must be thinking that the more they learn about what is predetermined, the more control they will have. This is an illusion. Human beings want to feel that they are on a power walk into the future, when in fact, we're always just tapping our canes on the pavement in the fog. Well, it's just unassailably true, right, that people want to know the future. They want to build a bank on something. They, they, we have a desire for, for control. Um, and in some ways, you know, I... I I know we hesitate to talk about um, the gifts of this moment, but things are so uncertain and so ever-changing day to day. It's it's forcing us into greater flexibility, um, some degree of faith. Um, I do think you know. Also, as Christians, we right we have this. Uh, we have there's some things we're sure about, or we say we're sure about. Right, we're going to die. We are loved, um, and that. At the end of the day, everything actually is going to be okay, even if it's not today or tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now. And I think that to the degree we live in that hope and live in that faith, it gives us the ability to um, weather the storms of uncertainty that are just sweeping over us right now. Um, knowing that our lives, the lives of the people we care about, that we're responsible for, are ultimately not in our hands um, uh, or their hands, but in God's hands. Um, and I say that I, I'm someone, I don't know, I, I'm not a big planner, honestly. I am kind of a day-to-day, seat-of-my-pants kind of person, so it's probably easy for me to say there's something about this moment like that it wears on you, but there's also, it's a little bit exciting too, because every day is new and you never quite know what's going to happen. It goes back to that old cartoon, right? The, the um, Christians in the Colosseum with the lions being let in and the little tagline, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, <laughs> which, you know, which is ridiculous and true at the same time. Um, and for whatever's in God's plan for our life right now is for me to be moving in the middle of a pandemic and um, Sarah to never leave the house and uh, Dave yeah. to have gotten a haircut and a dog. Um, and God is present and active even in the midst of our fumbling uncertainties. And I find that 
profoundly hopeful. And again, I also find it profoundly hopeful that a Columbia humanities professor is quoting Job um, in the New York Times. You know, praise God for that. So, uh, uh, yeah, God's purposes move forward even in the midst of our uncertainty and fear. Yeah, I mean, I I am a planner, um, long-term planner, and so this has been really... I'm so really, sorry. This has been really hard. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, like, draw gender lines, but I wonder if that's, like, dad energy and mom energy. Um, you know, I really want to know what's going to happen a few months out from now. I do listen to all the pundits when they're like, this, you know, this is what the economy is going to do, and this is when the second wave is going to happen, and this is... You know, also knowing that, like, then I hear conflicting information <laughs> around it. So this has been very hard for me um, to kind of not know. I mean, I've played, like, a brain game I'm sure a lot of us have played where it's like, well, we'll know more by mid-May, you know. And then, like, mid-May got here and it's like, okay, we still don't know anything. And then it was end of May. And now for me, literally what I'm saying to everyone, like a dummy, I'm just like, in mid-June we'll know more, <laughs> you know. And it's like, maybe not, probably we won't, you know? Um, but I am like holding to that because I, it's, it's a weird thing for me to, to try to let go of. Um, I, I do feel like there's so much coming at us in terms of future projections and predictions. And I have found that to be, um, exhaustive, um, and also hard to turn off. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I definitely want answers. I mean, I guess the thing, and I've brought this up here on here before, but that I keep thinking about is like, you know, the AIDS crisis and like how long it took for us to figure it out and how, you know, I mean, like, I mean, my husband said probably a few weeks ago, he was like, you know, we're really not going to know anything about this for like 20 years, Yeah, <laughs> which is true. You know, um, apparently smoking helps. Apparently smokers know, have a lower I rate saw of infection, that, so we should all like, take up finally, smoking. Finally, they get their day. You know what I mean? Like, turns out it was a good decision. Like, you do yeah, you. Right. You know? The hats, the it's hats like are in, switching in, uh, all the time. Sleeper when Woody Allen wakes up and he's like, turns out wheat germ is terrible for you, but chocolate and smoking are excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I keep looking at this prayer. Do you guys know the book, Every Moment Holy? No. It's like no. a collection of, like... Uh, really i mean some of them are really quirky little little liturgies so like some of them like there's one for a meal eaten alone and there's one there's actually one for first responders there's a liturgy for wait waiters and waitresses but anyway there's one that i've read a lot with a small group i'm a part of uh, and i'm just gonna read the first two paragraphs because they're my favorite but it, it does go on from here in a world so wired and interconnected our anxious hearts are pummeled by an endless barrage of troubling news we are daily aware of more grief, O oh Lord, than we can rightly consider, of more suffering and scandal than we can respond to, of more hostility, hatred, horror, and injustice than we can engage with compassion. But you, O oh Jesus, are not disquieted by such news of cruelty and terror and war. You are neither anxious nor overwhelmed. You carried the full weight of the suffering of a broken world when you hung upon the cross, and you carry it still. I've, I've just taken a lot of rest in that, um, especially over the past few weeks, mm. because it is just, I feel like I'm just standing in an ocean of barrage of information. And a lot of that is my own doing, because I won't put my phone down and I won't turn the radio off. But um, mm. <laughs> I mean, own doing is relative to the bound will these days. <laughs> so yeah. here we are. But No, it's all, it's all of a piece, isn't it? Because... Yeah that what he's saying is that there's a need for control. When, we, when we're looking at these predictions, we want to know what the future holds because we want safety, yeah. but really what we want is control. And um, what the, the further level beyond that and, uh, is that you're going to look for what you kind of want to be true as well, especially when it comes to left-right distinctions. I, I don't think we've ever seen such a time when uh, people are kind of looking for something there's narratives and everyone's trying to reinforce narratives uh and you can see, watch someone look at the exact same piece of data and interpret it polar opposite ways and it's another again it's another form of control i have this story that needs to be true and anything that 
contradicts it needs to be assimilated somehow. And, uh, you know, I, I, Sarah, I, I do observe the same kind of mom energy, dad energy divide, at least in a lot of my, uh, colleagues and, um, and, and friends that there is, for whatever reason, I, I tend to justify my desire to live in the moment and not in the future, but uh, spiritually, you know, and to say, oh, I'm so, I walk by faith, not by sight, all that stuff. And, and maybe there's, I, so much easier for dads, I hope anyway. I, it, it does seem to be a lot easier for dads. We've got to I keep people's that. shoe sizes in our brains. I that. So. It's so tr- <laughs> well, I'm just saying like there, I do think that my faith does play some role in my ability yeah. to not like, you know, I've always mocked people always like, what's Mockingbird's five-year plan i was like we don't have a five-year plan we what, our five-year plan is that we don't be- ask Sarah. we don't believe in five-year plans <laughs> uh and uh but at the same time part of that is also driven by fear you know yeah. it's 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 just a different type of fear it's a fear yes. of being pinned yeah. down yeah totally. and what people yeah, are saying in either way you're dealing with the oh, human well. desire for control in some Yes. D- don't tell me what to do versus right. tell me what to do so I can do it. They're right. both very, you want the, you want the uh, keys uh, to your future in your own hands. And, and yeah. um, it is. Uh, That's so interesting, Dave. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So I, 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 as when I'm tempted basically to rationalize my, my, the ease with which I don't, I don't live in the future. It it has it has just as unsavory a, a root, and perhaps it, it mixed. You know, it's mixed, yeah. just like everything. Um, well, I thought we would end well, on a. Oh, sorry, RJ. Yep. Well, just one more thing. As Sarah was was talking, it reminded me last Sunday I preached on um, the First Peter passage in the lectionary, and it was so good. It was, um, do not be surprised at the fiery or do ordeal you are enduring as though something unusual were happening to you mm. um but Woo. but 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 rejoice that you are sharing in the sufferings of christ in order that you might also share in his glory um and then he goes on to say um well he ta- then he says you know uh, be careful because satan is prowling around like a lion looking to devour somebody and i'll be honest i didn't preach on that because i'm like I don't need a bunch of moralism right now from you, Peter. But I think what he was, because of course I should have preached on that because I thought about it. What he what he means is what Satan wants to do is take away our hope, mm. is take away our trust, is take away this faith that we have that we are that what we're experiencing is not unusual. That we we are participating in the sufferings of Christ and will participate in His glory. And then of course Peter wraps up by saying, um, "Cast all your anxiety upon God because He cares for you." Um, and I think those are, uh, those are good words for right now. Mm-hmm. Well, another good word yeah. for right now, which is sort of our final piece, is by <clears throat> Father Stephen Freeman, the Orthodox writer who we quote occasionally, haven't talked about in a little while. But he wrote something that I found profoundly hopeful. It's called, It's Good to Be Here. And in the midst of a, you know, you don't actually have to turn on the news to, to be demoralized by the state of the world or your own life. You can simply just pay attention. Um, But he said, a few days ago, after hearing a very distressing bit of social news, I found myself saying, I don't want to be here anymore. Mm. It was a voice of despair and sadness. The occasion had been a public altercation in which a stranger spat at a woman. It was the sort of thing that belongs among the lowest of human actions, but it happened. My distress, I realized, was a cry for something better, to be free of the darkness. The truth is that the darkness was slowly drawing me down. Our social strain is manifesting itself in many ways, many of them revealing the profound disease that underlies our culture. And this is nothing new. In 532 AD in Constantinople, over the course of a week, large parts of the city were destroyed by rioting and fires, including the earlier church of Hagia Sophia. This was in the early years of Justinian the Great's reign. The city had deep divisions between two semi-political sports factions, the Blues and the Greens. These factions also had connections to various nobles and senators with designs on the empire. The riots began in the Hippodrome following the 22nd chariot race of the day. The palace was placed under siege and the rioters set fires. Justinian thought to flee, but his wife, Theodora, talked him out of it, encouraged him to fight it out. I think Justinian was at a point of, I don't want to be here anymore. With a bit of intrigue and a... M- his wife was like, we have a five-year plan. <laughs> yes. Don't mess it up. <laughs> He's like, you're so controlling. Um, <laughs> with a bit of intrigue and a massive show of brute force, Justinian brought the city under control. 
The massacre that ended the riots is said to have resulted in over 30,000 deaths. Later that same year, construction began on the present Church of Hagia Sophia. Five years later, with its completion, as well as numerous other projects, Justinian had transformed the city towards the glory that would make it renowned throughout the world. He writes, The full account of Christian history is messy and marked as much by darkness as by light. Nevertheless, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. During the period of time of the riots, Mary of Egypt was newly reposed. Benedict of Nursia was writing his rule. Isaac of Syria was composing his hymns. Brendan the Navigator was crossing the Atlantic. Romanus the Melodist. Brendan the Navigator? Oh, my Wikipedia, please. Was he, was he in the movie Flight of the Navigator? Like, I don't know. Do you was think this guy the, is an uh, Orthodox writer? <laughs> Do you think he's an Orthodox writer? No way. Um, he said, Isaac of Syria was composing his hymns. Uh, Romanus the Melodius was composing. <laughs> yeah, you could... He made that one up. Romanus the Melodius? <laughs> By the way, Wait. It's Good to Be Here is the title of a diggable planet song. RJ, I'm he's got a point. Say. Go, Dave. Sabbath the Sanctified was founding the monastery of Lavra outside of Jerusalem. Columbia, Columba of Iona was evangelizing Scotland, and doubtless thousands of other unknown souls sustained the universe with their prayers. Our time is no different. The darkness of our time contains the brightness of good souls whose deeds are known only to God. Despair comes when we look at the dark and forget the light. This is the great battle that rages in our day as well. Then it was blues versus greens. Now it is reds versus blues. Their champions are forgotten, as are their causes. Our champions will be swept away into the dustbin of history along with their urgencies. Justinian is not remembered for the riots, but for a church. And even so, many do not recall his name. Some do not even know the church. But holy wisdom in whose honor the church is named, continues to frame and sustain the universe, sweeping away the meaningless dust of the darkness while building on the foundation of light. It is good to be here. Yes, Padre. I like this. You know, you got... This is very encouraging. I mean, I just... Brendan the Navigator. Brendan the Navigator, first of all. Let's... Diggable planets. Yeah. Next Mockingbird piece. Y'all buckle up. Brendan the Navigator. Um, I mean, I, in all seriousness, like... We're hearing people are praying more. We're seeing huge numbers of people showing up for church virtually. We're seeing such encouraging work come from some people already. Um, you know, I honestly like to tie it back to some earlier stuff. I'm not sure it's like the worst time for us to also be facing systemic racism. Like there's a lot that we can be thinking about. And Let's get it all about. done in the next week or yeah, two. Yeah, But I mean, like <laughs> there is a sense of like, what are some beautiful things that will come out of this, you know, and, and how is God using this time in ways that we can't even imagine? I mean, that's a very goodness. That's a very powerful thought for me. I mean, I, I think just in my own house, my children are more precious to me than they were before this. My husband is more precious to me than he was before this. Um, you know, I've learned the glory of paper plates. I mean, I just, I feel like there's a lot that I'm really thankful for. Um, and I don't, I don't know how God will use this time um, for his people, but it is, that is such an encouraging thought to have right now. Yeah, you know, this Sunday is uh, Pentecost, right? It's like the birthday of, of the, the church. church. And and I was thinking, as I was thinking about the birthday of the church and the Holy Spirit, I was thinking about Jesus' words to the disciples. You know, it's better for you that I go away, because if I, unless I go away, the, the comforter, the, the advocate, the, the Holy Spirit can't come. Mm -hmm. And how, what a strange thing that is to say, because it's like, really, Jesus, wouldn't it be just better? better if you stuck around? <laughs> Wouldn't that just be easier so we could have you in the flesh? But I do feel like what I've seen um, in my church and in other churches are, um, rather than just being one physical Jesus, there's like lots of people kind of doing some of Jesus's work in the world mm -hmm. by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's been amazing to see, you know, people calling people and caring for people and providing for people's needs and teaching and praying and... Um, it's been kind of amazing to see the decentralization mm -hmm. of, uh, um, you know, ecclesiastical work and authority uh, because I'm, you know, I haven't been in Florida. I've been in Texas and, yeah. and people have been doing amazing work. Even if they can't leave their house, they've been doing amazing work because they've been checking in on their friends. Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, it is. It's, it's first time I'm like, oh yeah, maybe it was better. What well, doesn't? It, 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 we're not. Left. We're not saying though that that the darkness somehow is light. What we're saying is that the light shines in the darkness. In the darkness. The darkness no, is right. real. The the George Floyds of the world, the the people dying alone in hospital rooms in New York, and just the fights you're getting in with your spouse. Those are real. You know, yeah. uh, yes. and the way the different ways you see the future and the prediction, addiction, all this stuff, that's real. But what we're yeah. also seeing is that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. And because yeah. um, that's what we'd be lying not to testify or bear witness occasionally to the fact that, um, you know, Sarah, you said that you said that you quoted your husband saying that we're not going to know really until 20 years what on earth really is going on. Mm-hmm. When if you take uh, Father Freeman or you look at you know Tom Holland's Dominion, we may not know for five hundred years. We might th- there might be some you know s- small act of kindness in a in a tiny town you know in Saskatchewan <laughs> where something really mm-hmm. important just happened that wouldn't have happened otherwise. I had a you know you, sometimes students you know boil things down to you and, and a, a student just shot me a text. He's like, hey, I got a quick question for you. Wanna get a sec? Um, where is God in the pandemic? <laughs> like, oh, oh, just a short a little question. I'll just shoot you back a text. Yeah. It's like, well, we talked. And I said, you know, yeah. God is, on one level, God is hanging on a cross. Um, yeah. And God is also uh, in an empty tomb. And God is on the front lines. And But we can't say for certain, we can say that God is present, especially when it seems that he's not. And we can also say that we will only see through a glass darkly. And um, there are uh, things, a lot of the good things that have happened in your own life, just like the the baseball card story that we told, you know, it didn't come out for 30 years later. Did he actually mention, you know, the one thing that you you don't even remember doing was the most important thing that ever happened to me. Yes. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. Um, and I'm also reminded of what, what a couple of things. One, um, you know, what Luther said was, was the religions that are closest to Christianity are, is actually um, like animism, mm. because at least animates, animists locate, locate God working in the world, that he's not somehow separate or lofty or separated. He is doing something right now, even if we don't understand what it is. And Dave, I, I appreciate your, you know sort of realism and grounding us in, in, in the difficulty of this moment. Um, and at the same time, I also remember Todd Brewer's like really convicting piece a few weeks ago about how Paul talks about suffering, and he's always turning people back to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the New, in the New Testament. Um, and yet the, the outlook seems to always to be um, hope, hopeful, hopeful, you know, um, even in the midst of... Uh, of suffering and pain and death and, you know, so I don't know. It's a, it's that that's a delicate balance, right? It's something we're still working through. How do we to how do we acknowledge the the reality of people's um, pain uh, because we know that God uh, is is on our side, that He is working, that He'll bring things all to completion, um, it, while also you know remaining um, hopeful and and without being Pollyanna-ish or every cloud is a silver lining-ish. You know, we don't want to do that. I'm not quite sure how to walk that rope just yet. There's a photograph I keep thinking about that kind of defines that moment for me that is of a doctor in Italy. You guys may have seen this. And she's fallen asleep in front of the computer that she's putting her charts in um, with her mask on. And the photographer called it the sleep of the righteous or the rest of Mm. the righteous. Mm. The rest of the righteous, which is such a... um, feels like such a biblical phrase to me. Um, and I think there's so much about that photograph that I love. I mean, I love that it's captured this, this woman's calling and commitment to care for people as they're dying. Um, that it's captured the kind of risk that she's putting herself in. Um, but I also, for me, and I think maybe this is what I was trying to say, Dave, I love that someone has been able to see this and not just see it as sad, but to see there's something maybe even transcendent about it. And I think that is what I find incredibly moving about this piece and about the way that that we're dealing with this time is like, yes, it is awful and it is all these horrible things. But if you are a person that can see that, it's 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 everywhere right now. 
um, because God is working in this in such a fervent way. Um, and that doesn't mean that we know it. It doesn't mean that we feel it, but the, there are just these moments where you're like, oh my gosh, like it's, it's thick with the Holy Spirit. And that's the theology of the cross, right? That's one of the things we hold on to most tightly is that God is at work where he would seem to be absent. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you don't have to look for news stories or the mocking cast to look in your own life. There are, there's fruit yes. being born, mm. uh, or the, those are the lives of people around you. Um, yes. it, 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 you don't have to get a puppy to, to be dealing with new life. There's all sorts of... It helps, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's good to be here, and it's good to be with the two of you, and I wish you safety and joy and maybe a little rest during these next couple weeks, and all of our listeners out there, uh, thank you for tuning in, and we'll be back at you, I think, the third week of June. So be well. See you then. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the 